Hello and welcome to Growth, the startup sales podcast presented by the Sales Lab Online. I'm Guy Lambert and today I'm thrilled to be joined by our very first guest, Josh Farr, the founder of Campus Consultancy. Josh, thanks for joining us. Not a worry, Guy. Pleasure to be on uh, the very first show. How exciting. Yeah, it's quite exciting. You're, uh, you've got to set the bar quite high, I'm hoping, for everyone, <laughs> yeah, everyone to follow. We'll see. I don't know about that. No, it's awesome, man. I'm, I'm thrilled to chat to you. Awesome. So tell us about, before we jump into some of the good stuff, tell us about your business, Campus Consultancy. Definitely. So I founded Campus Consultancy in August of 2017. And really, it was like responding to a need that I'd seen and experienced. So when I was in a bit of the origin story, like the comic book number one, when I was in university, I was really involved in clubs and societies. So I studied engineering, I was involved in the engineering club. And some people out there who might have done accounting, or who might be from overseas, maybe they joined a Chinese student society, or an ultimate Frisbee student society, all these different sorts. Uh, And when I was at university, I ran one, but I was about 21 years old. I was elected to lead this club, a team of 12, tens of thousands of dollars in revenue, 700 plus members when we started. And I didn't really, it didn't really dawn on me how much responsibility and um, how much opportunity there was to make a difference in, for my own sort of leadership experience and in the lives of other students when I started off. And even though I went pretty well and I had a great team who deserved the majority of the credit, um, when I looked back on that experience, I really didn't feel prepared for it and I made a lot of really silly mistakes. So fast forward five years, I was working in graduate recruitment, going back into the university space, working with clubs and societies all over Melbourne, different universities. And what I kept coming up against time and time again was all of these student leaders had the same problems I was experiencing. They hadn't received any training. They were recreating the wheel every year and there was almost a hundred percent turnover in leadership. So some really definite and well-defined problems and I had customer interviews all over the country called people up asked them about their problems when I kept hearing the same things I decided to do something about it and my idea was to build the first of its kind training program that not only taught leadership as one pillar but as the second and third pillars taught entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial skills uh, as well as elements of emotional intelligence Um, and the change that I really want to see and the value I want to add to student life through campus is helping young leaders be more entrepreneurial, um, be prepared for their leadership roles and lead um, and see leadership as service. Um, Lead as emotionally intelligent leaders, lead thinking, how can they add the most value to their communities? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really awesome. So I think you and I met maybe, maybe a month or so after you'd kicked off campus. And I suppose bear in mind at that stage, you were still working full time as well, right? Totally. Yeah. I actually worked full time up until for about a year. While, while I was sort of like building up the business, um, yep. which I suppose will come into the, the sales part of that later. But yeah, so it was definitely a, it was a night job, a weekend job, uh, at some points working through the lunch hours, responding to emails, <laughs> all the good stuff. Yeah. So one thing, and you've, you've alluded to it there, one thing I really liked when we first sat down was uh, I've got no background, you know, despite being somewhat of a, of a permanent perpetual student. I've uh, <laughs> been to every university in Victoria. Sometimes it feels like, um, I've never been a member of a club or a society. But one thing I really liked about your story and your idea for campus was the fact that you had this niche, you'd found a problem to be solved and no one else was doing it. Uh, and that's clearly worked really well for you. Yeah, and I think it was, that was something too. I was actually chatting with someone just today 
and they were talking about how they wanted to a student. I always meet with students and just sort of they float their ideas. And I love hearing about um, their really early stage startups. And one of them was sort of, he was talking about this idea that he had, but he didn't, it wasn't, he wasn't obsessed on a problem. He had an idea of kind of a solution. And one of the things I've found through going through this journey is so often people have an idea of something they want to create or bring into the world without it actually solving any real problem. Whereas my kind of point of differentiation was I experienced the problem and made tons of mistakes myself. Uh, and then I was seeing other people experiencing and recreating those same problems. And I thought, this is that scratch your own itch sort of startup story and <laughs> something I could do something about. Yeah, I think you're making a really good point there um, around seeing a problem and wanting to solve it because I think so many people and I talk to so many people that have come from a similar position of of having an awesome idea but not really any idea what problem it's solving or you know who their potential customer is. Um, mm. So I think you've, you've absolutely nailed it there. And so, that's interesting. Oh, sorry, you go. No, go, go on. I was just going to say that's a really interesting point because like one of the things I found and not to steal the thunder on the sales front, but one of the things I found speaking to lots of founders and I reached out, um, I got a lot of great advice from yourself and learning from others was that I don't really think sales is something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Um, why I likewise not. I share the, I share the kudos for you of like starting uh, a community and creating content. And now this podcast to show people all the different elements of it. But one of the things I found was the only, a lot of people, well, for myself, when I was um, sharing what I was doing with people, I was just so genuine and so motivated and so passionate about it that it didn't really feel like I was selling something. It was like, yeah. here's a problem. I found a way to solve it. Um, and I got a really great piece of advice from a mentor along the way that said, if you genuinely care about your audience and you have a real solution to their problem, then to not present it to them is depriving them of a way to solve a real problem. And for me, that was like such a nice reframe on sales to be like, if you're genuine about this, it's just a way of making sure you're sustainable while doing what you care about. So I thought that was quite cool. Yeah, I think a lot of founders have been in that position. Certainly, you know, we talk about founder-led sales all the time. You know, often, you know, your first hire is not going to be a salesperson or even a marketing person. It might be a, a tech person that's helping you going to build your product potentially, or it might just be you as a solo entrepreneur for the first couple of years. And mm. sales is probably, I would say, the most important skill to have because without revenue for your business, you've got no business. And you're right. I mean, as a founder, you can, you can be passionate. Your passion comes across when you're, when you're trying to sell your product. Definitely. Um, so let's fast forward. You went, um, took the leap, went full-time in your business. Uh, I suppose I'm going to get this completely wrong, probably two or three months ago, potentially. It might have been longer. Yeah. Days are flying by. <laughs> yeah, only a few months ago, only in about July. So just, a, just on three months. Right. And then so prior to that, you'd had some sort of revenue, had you? Or did you take the leap, uh, basically pre-locked-in customers? Tell me what your thought process was there and what prompted you to dive straight in. Yeah, definitely. So it was funny, but when the first, um, and I always say the first is the hardest, and I'm sure that'll come up a lot as you speak to early stage kind of founders. <laughs> um, the first was definitely the hardest. One thing that was really unique, and I had a really fortunate um, break due to some degree of preparation and some degree of great contacts. Um, I was producing a lot of content. I really believe one of the core values of what I'm doing with campus is to add value first. So was putting a lot of content out on LinkedIn about things I was discovering, workshops I was building, this whole change I wanted to create. And I had a student reach out from ANU 
and Australian National University in Canberra. Um, and they'd reached out and said, hey, we've he heard about what you're doing. We really love it. We'd love for you to come up. So from August, sort of starting the business, you know, creating these workshops, doing the customer interviews, um, doing like a pre-accelerator course, uh, which I did in Melbourne for six months, about a week before I finished that course, uh, which was a night school thing. So on a Thursday night, I went along for a few hours. Um, about a week before I finished that course, I'd gone up to Canberra, or I, actually, no, I'd confirmed Canberra um, as my first kind of client. ANU was the first client yep. just after it's I a finished A pretty good that. first client. Yeah, pretty great first client. It was great. Um, and went up and presented on a Saturday, and it was like this rainy Saturday in Canberra. Um, but it was great, and the students came along, and I got really good feedback. Um, but before I'd left, um, by the time, sorry, I'd prepared to leave my full-time job, that was the only client I had confirmed. Um, and at less than four figures, um, was definitely not something that I was going to sustain an income from, um, where I had a bit more confidence was really going, um, that it, I had that belief that it was kind of now or never, if I was going to do it, I should go all in on yep. to some degree. Um, and I'd had a lot more interest from other universities. So uni start to reach out and say, yep, we've seen what you've done at Canberra. We really like it. We want you to run that here. Um, so with a little bit of confidence that I, I could, I could grow it and with a, a degree of risk taking, I um, yeah, made the leap. So you had a pipeline of some description ready to go and I would assume a few testimonials from the day you ran up in Canberra. Yeah, I did. And that was really great. Like one of the, one of the first things, and now that I do a lot more of this stuff, working with students and some accelerator programs in-house, like that really clear delineation between like step one, getting problem solution fit after you've actually got a real problem, which we touched on. Um, before product market fit, before actually scaling and sustaining a business model. Like one of the things that I think I've been really, uh, really fortunate with is I put so much time into getting problem solution fit, like having a very clearly articulated, articulated problem that students experience and then putting so much time, hundreds of books, um, tens and hundreds of hours of podcasts, TED talks, the whole thing, like reading every article I can online, distilling down the best bits. Um, trialing and workshopping things that do and don't work. Um, but being able to solve that problem and then students coming along and saying things like, you know, this blew my mind. This is the best thing I've ever done. Like I never knew that um, I've never thought this way before. It's my best experience at university. Just these glowing kind of statements, um, which they do all the work. Like I start the day off by saying the smartest person in the room is the room. Um, <laughs> That's such a good point for what you're delivering. So handy, right? And so like to have the students, um, to have the students really create this change within themselves and I just kind of get to guide them through that and introduce them to frameworks where they really fill in the dots. Um, yeah, it has been great. But, you know, having a great product is only half the battle, right? You can't, um, it then needs to fit in the market and scale. Yeah, and it's that consistency, I suppose. And, and what I see a lot of you, you, you use LinkedIn really well, um, leveraging from what I've seen, leveraging um, those testimonials, uh, constantly connecting and sharing people's feedback. I don't know how many times a day, but I'm very often logging into to my LinkedIn and, and your name's popping up. Um, how, how powerful is that? Are you able to measure how important those testimonials have been? Uh, do people reach out to you and say, I saw you know, the testimonial from that session you ran in Canberra. We want to come and talk to you about what you can do for us. Yeah, oh, it'd be so great. Like, I think we've talked about this before, all the things that we wish LinkedIn could do. Um, I know we've had so many ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Was, you know? <laughs> um, and exactly with that, like, I wish there was like, 
you could get the analytics on the analytics on organic content is pretty good and it indexes really well at the moment. Um, but if you could literally get like when someone messages you to see which of your posts they've seen, seen and what triggered it would be great. Um, a good example is I had a university reach out to me just yesterday. Um, someone I connected with and the message literally said, um, like we've seen your posts. We really love your content and what you do. We'd love to know. Um, we'd love to know some details. Here's my email address just out of the blue. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Um, sent them through an email uh, a day later. They'd written back and said, yep, this all looks great. Um, pricing sounds good. Structure sounds good. Um, can you run a workshop? Um, I think it's my first one, first booking for May 2019. So they're wow. well ahead of the curve. Yeah. So they're like, hey, can you run a workshop? And I'm like, yep, love it. Book it in. And then before I had time to reply to that email, they'd sent another one saying, actually, can you run two? Um, we think we can fit in a second one. We'd love you to do it. I was like, so yeah. Three months time off the back essentially of, of social and repurposing testimonials, right? You're not doing any other marketing other than word of mouth. No, yeah. In three months, you've gone from taking the leap. I've got one client, potentially a few other interested to now pre-booking, you know, eight months in advance. Yeah, it's funny. Like, because this is literally like, this is so fresh and you know how quick this moves. This is like yesterday <laughs> and today. So my brain hasn't really caught up. So yeah. hearing you say that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cool, right? And I think it's, and that's kind of been my strategy is like this mix of really long-term patience, knowing that this is something I want to do and I really believe in um, and trying to put out good content that's always adding a lot of value. LinkedIn's definitely where I put 90% of my time because I'm in a B2B world. Um, yep. So yeah, and then it's, to see it come in, is, it's pretty amazing. So that actually leads me to my, my follow-up question was going to be, who are your buyers? Are they the, you know, the faculty of the university or are they, you know, does a, does a student president reach out to you directly or is yeah. it both? Yeah, this is really interesting. And I've had, I've had both. So the way that I frame the value that campus adds is through kind of three different, um, three different avenues. So firstly, what I really want to do is as a first point of contact, I think I put a post up about it today, actually, this idea of like the oxygen mask principle, you can't help others before you help yourself. So I know that students in leadership roles have disproportionate power. Um, universities, they can help so many students they want to. Uh, it's a very altruistic role to be in. Um, so my primary person who I want to help um, are these student leaders. So their problem is lack of training, primarily, lack of experience. So I help them through the program. However, to change something I learned very early on is to change the psychology of a student to I should pay for a program when I'm already paying to be at university and I'm volunteering my time to help other students is really hard. So I always use the analogy of like, if you're in a coffee shop and everyone's sitting around in Starbucks or whatever, and they're drinking their coffees, you would never have a customer of Starbucks self appoint themselves to be the like customer engagement leader and start hosting movie nights for the customers of Starbucks as a way to like drum up customer experience within the cafe. <laughs> like it just sounds ridiculous. It's like, why would you do that? Go and get your coffee, leave, right? Whereas at universities, <laughs> which are more or less a business and students, which are more or less customers, you have these students, AKA customers self-appointing themselves to lead and give back and add value and do all these amazing things. So I realized quite early on that I wasn't going to, and I didn't want to necessarily have students pay to be trained in a role that they are volunteering to do. So that led me to the really logical question of, well, who is going to pay for the program and then what value do they get? 
So when I thought back to my university experience, um, when I was leading a club, the first thing that I did, I think the first meeting I took was with the head of our engineering faculty. And they gave us quite a bit of money to run a lot of our events. And I sat down with them and I sort of just said, like intuitively, like, thank you so much for supporting us. Help me help you. What do you need? Like, why is it that you invest in the society? What value do you get? And what I heard back was really interesting. And so this is at UNSW at the time, maybe still is the top engineering program in, in the country, was that the number one reason students were dropping out of university was, and they had the data and they interviewed students as they dropped out. The number one reason students were dropping out of their degree was because of social isolation. So like lack of friends, lack of community. They were coming to class, leaving. They're spending so much time commuting. They didn't have anyone to support them when uni got tough, transition from high school to uni, all of that stuff. Yep. So I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And the, the faculty cared about that because, and this is what the, the kicker, because they ultimately, as a business unit of the university, had to report on their bottom line, yep. which was student retention. And, and no students, no revenue. Exactly, right? And so I, I always like the cafe idea because it's just so simple. Every business struggles with customer attraction, and customer retention. If you're Starbucks, you need to get people in the door to buy coffee or you go out of business. And if they come in to buy coffee, you need to find a way to get them to come back again and again and again. The exact same thing, um, exact same thing with universities. They need to get people in the door, new students. But once they're in, they're not just in for one coffee. It's not transactional. They're there for three, four, or in your case, 600 years. <laughs> it certainly study. feels like it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so in a long-winded way of answering your question, what I realized was where this, the university saw a lot of value in clubs was that they helped with student retention. So... I, as a student, spent my whole time trying to make the student experience as good as possible, which indirectly then benefited um, student retention. Then when I was, sorry? I was going to say, I think you're raising a really good point there because you've identified a pain point initially in your role as a student president, but probably more importantly identified that there's actually no money in solving that pain. Exactly. The money is elsewhere. And I think so many businesses miss that. Totally. And that's when I think when you're in that... um, I think that's that really early distinction of like, are you doing something that's um, directly like a really true 100% B2C product or service or is it a B2B play? In which case the incentives are just different and you've got to be, you have to be able to speak to those and honestly deliver to those as well. So I think for me, when I realized like, okay, one, the faculties have a huge interest in, uh, and the student union, some of the student unions in the country spend 10, 15 million, $20 million a year on their <laughs> student clubs. Completely insane. It's insane money. Like it's ludicrous. Um, and, but valuable, right? And they wouldn't keep doing it and keep investing more and more if it didn't contribute and education, third biggest driver to the Australian economy. Um, so it's an enormous player. Um, so it clearly works. Um, so what I realized when that they had a huge financial interest in student life being really great and successful, um, I went away and did a bit of research. I actually found a report which backed it up, which was really good with speaking with academics. So this yep. was a little bit of like when you're one of the lessons I learned of if I'm if the customer, for lack of a better term, is a university faculty, I need to be able to speak their language. And so I'm, at, you know, at August last year, I'm a 27-year-old guy with an idea. Um, doesn't really relate to the rigor of university research. So I went and found the research <laughs> that said 
Um, there's basically, I think it was a, a, a study in 20, 2006, and it said there's six things that drive student retention, one of which directly is getting students more involved with clubs and societies. So I had a peer-reviewed piece of research to take to the universities and say, look, this works, plus I've spoken to all your students, they want it, I've got the solution to it. Um, and the other kicker is that the faculties were, um, were becoming more aware of this, at least in my experience. So um, yeah, once I realized that that, that was who, that was gonna be the customer and my pitch to them was going to be that this program would really help their retention and student experience and all these other sort of side benefits, um, as well as me delivering the best training I could. Yeah, that's awesome. I wanted to sidetrack a little bit. One of the things you mentioned there was um, you've closed a, a sale yesterday, essentially, uh, and that this particular um, person was incredibly happy with your price. Now, I remember actually, I think the day or you were maybe about to go and talk to ANU, your first client, you and I were having coffee. Yeah. We were having this discussion around what do you charge them? Um, <laughs> I'm keen to hear how that conversation has evolved with yourself. Mm -hmm. Have you found the sweet spot? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one about the sweet spot. And this is something that comes up a lot. I think almost everyone I've spoken to from like an advice point of view or mentors and spoken to a lot of them, all of them have said, raise your price. Um, <laughs> yep. Which I think is something, I love the way you say that. Like, yep. Um, which is something that like I completely take on board. Um, my early experience, and maybe this will feed into the idea of like, I'm sure the concept will come up of a sale that went wrong. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that every single university I've met with has seen enough value in the program. When I've sat down one-on-one face-to-face with a staff member from a university, all of them have said yes to the program, um, which maybe means, it surely means that the price is, is too low. Potentially. Um, Oh, you're a really low. amazing salesperson. No, or that's, an engineer. Definitely, that's definitely not the case. I'm an engineer, so that's, that's <laughs> definitely not it. Um, but my, except for, so this is a caveat, except for my very first meeting. So the first time I'd ever pitched campus to, in a real meeting, you've got to understand, like for me as well, from someone with not necessarily a sales background, who it was an idea four months ago in August and then, in November, I went in for like my first face-to-face -face with a university representative, sort of like promoting the program and saying if they wanted it. Um, I met with a university in Melbourne, uh, in Melbourne, not Melbourne University, uh, University of Melbourne. <laughs> and um, this university was really eager. Uh, they loved it. One of the ladies I was meeting with used to be a club president. She totally understood it. Uh, and at that point, I had a price on my website of like $400 per person to go through this program. Um, and I'd had advisors say like, no, that should be a thousand dollars per person. Thousand dollars. Yeah. So just put that in perspective. So I mean, how, some universities must have a hundred, 200 clubs, right? So if they're putting each of those student presidents through, that's a significant sum of money for a day's content. So that's ultimately to cut to the chase, what the feedback was when I quoted a price. So they came back <laughs> right. to me and said, we love it. We want you to come in. We want you to train like 80 of our presidents or something like that. I think it was, um, and they said, we've looked at your website and we see that it's $400. Does that mean the day is going to cost us 32, 32 grand? And I was like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds a bit steep, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> said, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, no. So I sort of like, I, I mapped it onto like a geometric growth curve. And I was like, look, if, it's, if we bring everyone in, I'll significantly reduce the price. Um, and bear in mind that I, 
to quantify the value of this in a um, in like a value-driven pricing rather than like an arbitrary, this is how much it costs for a day. I needed to have people go through the program so I could prove mm. that um, it had all the effects. You need your I'd... success stories that you can you know, do some modeling around, right? Exactly, exactly. So I didn't have those yet. I mean, I had it anecdotally from my experience and I was teaching everyone what I did, but five years later and with a hundred times more skill. Um, <laughs> But that I couldn't sort of, I didn't want, I didn't want to sell that because I thought that was too, it didn't sound genuine. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted the real students to go through it and prove it, um, put my money where my mouth was. Unfortunately, the, the price I quoted was uh, they couldn't um, ultimately, or they didn't ultimately go through, even though they sort of told me that they would. And I went on a holiday and I'm like, yes, I just closed the first sale. I was super excited. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is too easy. You just meet with, meet with someone and they <laughs> love your idea. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but it was great. Like that really motivated me to go off and do a whole bunch of work, even though that first sale kind of fell through. Um, and so how, talk, how has yeah. your model changed since then? I suppose you've, you've taken some learnings out of that, obviously. And Off the back of the first experience, I realized that um, pricing something on a per head model um, without, without a, a degree of uncertainty from the university. So their risk was if we sign up to a per head model and not everybody comes or we sign up to a per head model, um, there was like a, a degree of um, friction there and I couldn't really surface it in those early meetings. So mm -hmm. at least knowing, I think that the learning for me was that there was that friction. And so I said, okay, well, let's, let's not do that. Um, I proposed a different model, which was a flat rate for the day. And I said, you can bring, um, cause I'd facilitated sessions before um, in previous roles with, groups of um, up to about a hundred students. So I was like, look, I've run sessions with up for a hundred. It's designed to be uh, run with groups for up for a hundred. Um, I've done the same sessions with groups of two, three, five, 10, 20. It, it doesn't really matter. It's flexible. So I gave them that flexibility for the day and the universities were much more receptive to that. So they were able to put out an open offer. It wasn't just for student presidents. It was for student leaders in any way involved in these clubs. Um, and when we opened it up, um, ever since then, when I've met with the university reps, they've been really um, receptive to the idea. Every one of them has, has booked in the sessions. And now what I'm moving towards is, and when it comes into pricing, and I think that's obviously such a big part of sales, mm. because I have such a long-term view of like, this is something that I really want to build. I want to over-deliver. I want to do all of those things that aren't scale, scalable in the early stages. Um, an example, like just yesterday I went to like Australia post and sent out a bit of a whole bunch of like surprise and delight gifts. So I like pulled people's, <laughs> like I've been like finding things in stores and I was overseas in America and I found something and it reminded me of someone who was in one of my workshops and one of oh, the wow, things that's they said. Yeah. And I just like, but it was like, whatever, right? I just saw this t-shirt and like, oh, he's going to love that. Even though I only met him that one day. And so I was like, wouldn't it be <laughs> funny if like, he just like a month after he did a workshop with someone who he only saw once, he got like this package in the mail that was like a t-shirt that was like, Oh, this is, this thing happened and it reminded me of that workshop. So I was doing like, I wanted to do something that really differentiated myself. Yeah. Um, and even though I was affordable on price, I wanted the brand to say we over deliver, we're here. Um, so if you want more sessions, if you want stage two, three, four, if another faculty or another arm of your faculty needs a facilitator or needs training, I just wanted to be that no brainer option. So that's really where I was investing in.
Yeah, and you've you've unintentionally or perhaps intentionally uh, come across you know what I think is key, especially for a lot of super early stage businesses, is that over deliver piece. Go the extra mile. You know, you're, you're probably not going to have a polished product, or um, you know, you might not even have a product in some cases. Mm. But the fact that you can over deliver or do those little one percenters is what's going to make you memorable. And I think that's something that um, I had a really nice moment uh, last week actually, where. Um, and I think, I, I wonder if, I wonder if other founders think this way of like, I spend a lot of time in, because solo founder, you're doing the business development, you're doing the marketing, you're building relationships, you're doing the branding, the whole bit, um, as well as actually delivering what it is. Um, and so there were times where I'd sit down and I'd look at all the meetings I'd have for the week. Um, I'd do this one exercise once where I had so many meetings, like seven in the morning till nine o'clock at night, like five days a week. And I was just, it was crazy. And I, wrote out a list of all the meetings I had and how long I was in those meetings. And then I put like a, like a rough percentage of how likely I thought that meeting was to convert to a sale. So these yeah. were like things that like some people I was catching up with friends for advice. So that's like a 0%, right? And yep. that's yep. all based on gut feel though. No science whatsoever Zero behind. Zero science. So this yep. is like the most rudimentary back to my engineering days, back of the envelope kind of calculations. I think it's <laughs> literally on the back of like a credit card, statement that came in the mail um, <laughs> they still so just, come in the mail do they yeah yeah i know so that's like the the, the infinite list of things that founders should um have organized but have just put to the side to uh, <laughs> do pd instead so to fit in another meeting like literally so i anyway i wrote out a list of all the meetings i had in the week and i think it was like 20 meetings or something like that and some went three hours some went for half an hour wrote down next to them then um, how likely i thought that would be to convert to a sale and the expectation was never every meeting should convert to a sale. Like so many of my meetings are still learning and developing the ideas and yeah. and all that stuff. So, but I wanted to know like, okay, is this a good use of my time? Um, and then I said, and there are different sorts of sales. So if I'm running, if, you know, I thought I was a 90% chance of running a two hour workshop because that's what we talked about. Great. Whereas I might be a 50, 50 chance of running a full day workshop. So then in the third column I put in, um, how much that workshop indicatively would be worth. And then really simple expected value calculation of percentage times dollar value equals dollar value. Yep. And added all of those up as just like a rough idea and came to a final figure. So I was like, okay, from all those meetings, this is approximately how much in revenue I can expect. Um, and then I added up all the times. And then I think I did a very like average, like engineering sort of thing of like, you always like double or triple it. So I was like, all right, if I was in a meeting with someone for an hour, I'm probably going to need to have two more one hour meetings with them before this goes through. Um, yep. Plus then the time of the actual workshop. So say I take 20, 20 hours of meetings. I'd roughly triple that, call that 60. And then I'd add on the amount of hours of, um, yep. of workshops. And plus then some preparation I, time, right? Plus some prep time and things like that. Um, so I took all that into account and then what I had was a dollar value and a number of hours for what I'd sort of got done in that week. And that was really interesting because I looked at that and I was like, I was like, okay, I'm actually like for that week. I was like, yeah, I'm really on track. Like, even though it's felt like I'm in lots of meetings, it's all business development, but I'd ended up there. So how does that relate to the, the idea of like over delivering? One of the things early on was I sort of, Sometimes I'd fall into that trap of saying I'd be in that third or fourth meeting that was leading up to a sale, but never really sure if, if it would. Um, and for me, I'm always, I'm just so student centric. Like I just want to 
get the yes so I can get in the room and start working with the get students. Get in front of the students, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because when I'm in front of them, that's when it's magic. And that's when I'm really like, I'm, I'm, I, because without that, I don't have the context. I don't know what's the person, what's their background, what's their problems, what's their personality. But once I have all those pieces, I can start to, to work it. So I'm always just like, how do I get in the room? But what I had to catch myself doing is going, no, actually, the building the relationship with the, like the stakeholder, um, or in this case, the university, the, the customer, I suppose, it was so crucial. And I very quickly realized, huh, this is sacred time. And I need to really invest in this and enjoy this part of the process. Um, because at this point, I'm doing everything. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. once I changed that mindset, um, I got in a really good place. And l- just last week, I actually had um, my first meeting where at the end of the meeting, um, the um, the university I was meeting with, they were like, Josh, don't forget to like log this as hours that you quote us when you bill us for everything you've done. Um, oh, wow. And they were sort of like, you've come in a couple of times and met with us. We really appreciate that. From now on, when you come in and, and meet for an hour or have ideas or we spend time at the whiteboard, like that, that time is all, is all part of what you're providing and what we're willing to, um, to cover. So that was kind of nice. Like that was the first time, um, I suppose as a business, like I'm always in there trying to, to add a bunch of value, that core, that core value yep. of mine, but to really hear that being appreciated and them going, no, like your ideas are great. They're valuable to us. It's not just the content, but it's the thinking behind it that, that we appreciate. It's all that pre-work. I think, you know, that word of value gets so overused, you know, these days, every second mm. sales post on LinkedIn is about this idea of adding value, adding value. Yeah. But I think there is a really good point as well. And I think, you know, you're, you're showing there that, you know, you've had benefit from this idea that, now, value add doesn't necessarily happen simultaneously, that value exchange. It's not necessarily, mm. you know, I give you money, you give me a service or whatever it may be. It may be that you're offering a service and you might not see value, you know, for you, cash in the bank for another six months. This, and this is where I think everyone, like not everyone that's generalization, I, and I've seen others before, I've got this so twisted, whereas like if you're giving with expectation, that's not adding value first. All that is, is you're preloading the amount of work you're willing to do, assuming that you're going to get something back. Like, I think people get that concept wrong. And you see these sales posts that are about add value, add value, add value. And then you, you click the three dots on LinkedIn and you fill out the whole post. And down at the bottom of the post, it's like, and it will return to you. You know, you don't know how it's going to come back to you. And it's like, that's not it. Like, when I do the, like yesterday, when I send out these little, little gifts and surprise and delight things, like I sent that out because I was in a gift shop in San Jose and I thought of someone <laughs> and I thought they'd love it. Like yeah. full stop. And then I didn't think about that for the rest of the day. Like, and I don't think about that now. That's not an on sell. And for me, I know it's really genuine because those, I suppose those gifts in this context um, were going to students who aren't my customer and I don't have a B2C play. So for me, it's like that, that's not, putting them back in the funnel. That's not pushing them onto the next sell or the upsell or the cross sell. That's purely like they will get value out of this from joy or from having a laugh or from remembering a really good day. And so I think like if it's, if it's genuine and you're doing something that you know you're passionate about, those things come to mind. Whereas if I would have gone, Oh, I could have spent that, you know, that, that $25 plus postage into Facebook ads that would have got me, you know, 4,000 reach at $7 CPMs. Like that's, <laughs> it's such a it's transactional way to think about value versus yeah. when I mean it, it's like, you know, 
I looked at that week. I was telling you before when I added up my weeks and I was like, percentage likelihood of a sale. So many of them were just straight zeros. <laughs> and like, I sat there looking when I lined them all up. I'm like, all right, Josh, is seven hours worth of meetings with students who, um, who want to talk about startups? Like, is that a good use of your time? And I was like, oh, I just love it though. So, <laughs> well, there's value for you in that. And potentially you never know where the student's going to end up. You know, you said earlier that one of your first clients was a former president, right? So yeah. you never know where that person's going to be in a year or two years. And in two years time, your business may be struggling and you'll, you know, you'll thank Josh, current Josh for investing in his future. And I, I think that's it. And I think it's, um, I think it's, I don't want to come across naive when I say that, um, you know, give without any expectation. I think it's like, of course, things will come back. I'm a big believer in like, you do the right thing and the right things will happen to you. Um, so I'm really trying to live by that. But it's just not that I can switch between that very calculated engineering brain of like, okay, am I spending my time in the right ways? Am I on the right platforms? Do they convert? Do these posts or forms of posts index well in you know, October 2018? but then flip it over to the idea of like, let's just do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I'm sure I'll be my own delight and surprise in the future when and if that comes back. But if it doesn't, I'm not banking a single dollar of the business um, yep. converting. Yep. All right. I'm going to ask you one last question. Cool. That I cannot wait to hear what your answer is. I want to know what your greatest mistake has been in trying to build you know, a business building your sales funnel, what's been your biggest failure? What would you go back and tell pre-founder Josh never to do again? Oh, it's such a good question. Okay. My biggest failure in the sales funnel. I think the first thing that comes to mind was, I don't know if I put this as a failure, but the thing that, that comes to mind was for a lot of people that I speak to, and now I'm doing a little bit of work with students in helping them start their own kind of businesses up. And a lot of them don't have a business background. And as I kept saying, like I did engineering, I didn't have a business background. Like a year and a half ago, I couldn't have, like if someone would have said B2B or B2C or sales funnel or <laughs> next sale, like I literally didn't have that language. I didn't have any of it at all. So yeah. when I started off, my first sort of iteration of this program um, and the training program that is, the first iteration was totally different and it was all about mentoring and about like bringing people together and all about connection and these very kind of like, I suppose like altruistic and feel yeah, good. Very warm and fuzzy, but not a lot of structure perhaps. Exactly. All of those things. And I think meeting uh, people like yourself had a real influence on my thinking there. And very quickly, I think the biggest failure early on was that I didn't have a customer in mind which sounds completely ridiculous from a business. Like I knew who I wanted to help, but like I also knew that the customer psychology was completely wrong for the, like yep. that purchasing behavior. So when I started off, I was building lots of connections and I had a lot of people saying like, yes, we want this. We want you to create it. But I never actually said to like those early sort of customer interviews, okay, well how much would you pay for this? And so I made assumptions along the way that, you know, this had to be a B2B product and it couldn't be a B2C product. And that mindset around um, finding a different way to add value was flawed at the start in that, like, I wasn't finding a way to really ask the tough question of the students to say, like, okay, if you think this is as great as you're telling me it is, what's it actually worth? 
And so it went to when I had that first meeting with the university we were speaking about that I put all my eggs in that one basket, um, drove a price that was um, too high for the, obviously for the, the sale. And it meant that instead of sort of conceding that that price was wrong, I sort of thought, no, that price is, that price sounds fair. Um, that's a discount on what everyone's been telling me I should charge. And it sort of set me back. I probably could have had that experience like I did in ANU in Canberra. I probably could have had that first university two to three months earlier. And in this sort of game, two to three months earlier would have saved me an enormous amount of time. Um, But I was so focused on that. I was focused on like the sale as an individual financial transaction rather than the brand that could be built off of the testimonials and the experience Mm. of actually running it and getting that MVP in its full form out into the market um, to test the idea. So I think if I was to summarize that, it'd be I didn't have a clear enough idea of the value I'd need to deliver to the actual customer as opposed to the student who was represented by the customer. And as such, when I didn't go forward with that sale, I didn't have a backup plan of who am I going to go mm-hmm. to next? Had all my eggs in that one basket um, and have since learned a lot about diversifying and different offerings and having sort of fingers in different pies. Um, but like as the phrasing is interesting of like the biggest sort of, of failure there because there were, there were lots and lots of things. And I think in funny sort of previous businesses that led to this is just like random ideas that, you know, I had a couple of customers with and then threw in the towel. I made so yeah. many there that, that I don't think I'll ever really talk about in detail because people would just be so bored by. Um, <laughs> but that sort of led to this. Um, so little failures along the way, isn't it? Yeah, it's lots of little failures. And, and I really love the um, Ray Dalio quote, like pain plus reflection equals progress. <laughs> and I always think like, for me, it's a really great framing of, and I write that quote every time I, I run a workshop on like lean startup and those three build, measure, learn stages. Yep. Ever I get to that like learn stage, I'm like, okay, there needs to be pain and there needs to be reflection. And then you get to go again around the circle. I think it's like such a nice way to put it. Um, and for me, even though, you know, failures across everything, like there's 10 things I messed up today. Like literally 10 things I was sitting there looking at something before. I'm like, I used the wrong font. I used the wrong color. I said the wrong thing. I didn't time that well. Um, whereas I get to sit back at those every night and go, okay, I've got another day tomorrow. I'm going to be a little bit better tomorrow. Um, 10 things, you know, not to do tomorrow. Seriously. And also like most people don't notice them. One of the funny things with like, I suppose from a sales perspective is like, I might put out, you know, I try to post basically every day on LinkedIn and now I'm doubling down on posting on the company page a lot more and getting a lot of that because the organic um, business content is indexing so well yep. that it might be that one piece of content that someone saw that I actually posted a week ago and they've never seen the post I put out two days ago with typos in it. But that <laughs> one post they go, yes, that is, we do have that problem. We do want that solution and that that's enough to convert. So yeah, diversifying, diversifying, I suppose, actions so that you can make lots of mistakes. But just like in sales, I mean, I think everyone would rather get 30 no's and three yeses than two yeses and zero no's. Um, so that's kind of yeah. what I'm focusing on. I think that's a really good point and maybe a good place to end. 
Josh, if people want to connect with you or find out more about Canvas Consultancy, where can they go? Cool. So no surprise, first off, I'd love to connect with people on LinkedIn. Um, so they just type in Josh Far F for Fred, A-double-R, I will pop up if they are <laughs> connected to you or following you, which I'm sure all of them will be. Uh, we're connected, so I'll pop up. Uh, alternatively, if you type into Google or any search browser, uh, www.campusconsultancy.org, um, you'll find the website there. Uh, should do a bit of a revamp of over the weekend. And if you want to reach out directly, I mean, old school for sure. If you want to send me an email, josh at campusconsultancy.org, if there's anything you want to chat about, um, ideas, if you have your own podcast, if you're just wondering about what I do, I've openly admitted that I have way too many meetings where I just like to talk about what I'm doing. Just That's seven hours a week, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, seven hours a week. Um, yeah, I just love to catch up with people um, and really figure out if there's one thing that... Um, a piece of podcasting technology, which I can't wait to introduce. I'd love to know if there's like one sentence or one concept or one quote or one, one part of this interview that resonated with you about a particular thing that you will then go and implement in your life. That'd be awesome for me to know um, in terms of my branding and what's valuable. Gee, I'd like to know too. Mm. <laughs> okay. If you've got a question you'd like answered in a future episode, you can email me at contact at thesaleslab.online or of course connect with me, Guy Lambert, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.